in the traditional development pattern, cities grow incrementally on a continuum of improvement. You can think of it more as an as human habitat, as an evolved human ecosystem, one that continues to adapt and change to changing circumstance. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. It's so wonderful to have you along for the ride. This episode featuring Chuck Marone with Strong Towns is a long one, but he weaves in so many fascinating stories about how he came to launch a worldwide movement, his personal experiences and learnings, as well as our current challenges in an era of a pandemic that you won't want to miss a moment. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chuck, and if you do, please tell a friend and subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter if you haven't already. Okay, let's get this episode rolling. This is John Zimmerman with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am happy to have online uh, Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Chuck, how are you? Good, my friend. Nice to see you. I was actually thinking, like, this is the first time I've done a podcast with someone that I, I think beat me at Trivial Pursuit. You, uh, you, you, you stayed at my place and we played, and it was a bigger group. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't I, just me. It wasn't mono or mono on that. No, I take Trivial Pursuit pretty seriously. So it's a, it's a full contact sport of my family. <laughs> and, and funny thing that you mentioned that is I, I actually was just thinking about that night too, because that was at the old house. At the old house. Yeah. That was, that was a different Chuck. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was at the Five Acres in the Woods. And right. uh, it's it's interesting because it's such a big part of my life and my kids' upbringing because we, we lived there. I mean, my wife and I lived there for almost 20 years, I think 19 years. And uh, the kids were, you know, half of that. And uh, yeah, to now be in the center of town in a place, you know, I, I've, I've never looked back, like this has been the best move and we wanted to move halfway through living at the other place, but you know, the market kept us from doing that. But yeah, I think just that lifestyle change of going from what, what I think in a very urban sense would be considered an, an exurban place. Right. Um, yeah. I live in a small town, so the scale's a little different, but the exurban place into like four blocks from downtown now in a, in a single family home in a small town, you know, Yes, but, uh, you know, quite a different context. That was radical. And we had a lot of people here, you know, in our family and out saying, what are, what are you doing? Why would you do this? And now I think a lot of them are saying, oh, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's, let's tee this up for the listeners a little bit and, and have you weave what we're talking about, your previous home and where you live now. And, and let's, let's put this in the context of strong towns because it's very much a part of the, uh, the story, the origin story, um, and, and what brought you to this point. And I, I guarantee you there's some listeners who don't know who strong towns is, doesn't know who Chuck Marone is. So let's, let's go ahead and tee this up. Yeah, hopefully they don't. <laughs> that's all. That's all good. Yeah. No. Um, it, it's. I mean, I grew up on a farm in in central Minnesota, and my wife and I met when we were in junior high and and dated all through high school and college. And she grew up on a lake 
uh, here in Minnesota. And when we got married, we couldn't afford a lake and we didn't want to live on the farm. So we kind of compromised by buying the five acres in the woods. I, I was working as an engineer at the time and building these kind of subdivisions. You know, I was putting in the sewer and the water and the roads and all that. And this just seemed like we got a really good deal on the lot and we got a nice place out in the woods. And, you know, it was, it was, it was set. Like I was, I was set for life. That was it. And over my years of doing engineering work and I went back to grad school and got a planning degree doing planning work, I, I started to question aspects of our development pattern that didn't make sense. And the, the one that really became pivotal for me was the financial part. And, and one of the earliest stories of this is actually comes from my own place. I uh, had an, a, a, a gravel road when we moved in. The city came out and paved it. I knew how much that cost. I, I, I mean, I was, I'm an engineer. I, I knew exactly what it cost to pave my road in front of my house. I got my tax statement and I looked at it shortly thereafter. And I said, my gosh, I'm paying, I can't remember how much of my tax went to the city. It was like 200 bucks a year or something. It was a very low tax place. I looked at this and said, it's going to take the city 60 years to pay for my road. Like the road's not going to last that long. How, how This doesn't even make sense. You know, like I, my taxes should be four times what they are now to have this make sense. And so, you know, I started to look at not only my place, but other places I've been working on, other projects that I had done. And every time I ran the math on them, I would see this same kind of thing. The city could maybe cash flow it over one life cycle. But as soon as the maintenance bill came due, as soon as the, the long-term costs started to manifest, from a cash flow standpoint, the city would run far into the negative. And it, it, be, it was so disturbing to me that I just hunted around for like, where are the places that are solvent? Like, how, how does this not work? And what I found was maybe even more disturbing than that. It was the way we patch our cities together financially is to just keep growing. If we can continue to add more and more subdivisions, more and more properties, more and more redevelopment, we're very good at cash flowing that. And we can use the cash flow from that to essentially float the rest of our insolvent municipal corporation. And this seems bizarre. I mean, it seemed insane to me at first until I started to recognize that this is what a lot of companies are doing. This is what a lot of private sector businesses, th this is actually like a strategy that is used uh, often in places. It always ends poorly. I mean, it always ends badly. But this is not like a, uh, a crazy kind of thing. It, we call it the, uh, the growth Ponzi scheme. It is basically Bernie Madoff without the, the bad intention, in a sense. But all of our cities today in North America have this same kind of aspect where we're insolvent financially when you add up all of our liabilities and compare those to all our assets. Yeah, it's a very disconcerting thing, particularly in this age of, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus and with the economy and with all these changes. We're not in a position to take very many punches and still stay on our feet. Yeah. And you sort of alluded to it there is that, you know, the way our cities are structured now today. And that's very much not the way our development pattern was uh, historically, correct? Well, this is, yes, this is part of, you know, the way that I personally resolved this, this issue, you know, looking at my house, the, the place that you stayed at, the place out in the woods, 
it was very clear that in our system, that was the most fragile place. That was the place where not only was the city never going to be able to fix the road and the utilities serving my house, but all the roads and all the stuff to get there were also likewise kind of balanced on this uh, very fragile set of assumptions. The places that were the most financially viable were the places near core downtowns, in old historic downtowns, in old historic neighborhoods. And we started looking for places in neighborhoods like that. My house was built in 1914. In 1914, the structure of how cities were built was dramatically different than the way it is today. They, they were not only built to be walkable. You can think of it in terms of a low burn lifestyle versus a high burn lifestyle financially. So when I live here in town, I can walk to my office. I could drive too, but I also walk and I choose to walk most of the time. If you think of that from a cost standpoint, if, if I want to spend the money, I can get in my car and drive or I can buy a car and drive. But if I don't want to spend the money, I don't have to and I can still live here and be okay. The same thing with the grocery store and the hardware store and the restaurant and everything else. At my old place, it was a 15 to 20 minute drive to everything in town, no matter what. And while I could have biked it, and I did bike it sometimes just uh, to say that I could, that was not something you would do uh, regularly. It was not something you would do on a whim. And it was not something you would do in February, you know, in Minnesota uh, when it's 20 below. So that was a high burn, high expense lifestyle. And what I just realized is that with with the cities around us, with the, the local governments and, and things, uh, very fragile I needed to, in my own resiliency sense, get into a place that I thought not only was going to survive because it's built on this more resilient framework, it's built on this more productive framework, but also have personal options myself for how I get around, how I conduct life. And, you know, there's been tons of other benefits to it beyond that. Um, but just that peace of mind of, yeah, I'm in a place that's been here over 100 years is designed in a way to withstand and be resilient just gives me a little bit of peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think you refer to it as the traditional development pattern. Is that correct? Well, I, yes. And, and, you know, let's draw a distinction. A lot of people will set the dividing line as the automobile and, you know, you've traveled around the world. I've traveled around the world. There are cities that use traditional development techniques that also have the automobile. I don't feel like the automobile is a very good delineator. The way we talk about it is in the traditional development pattern, cities grow incrementally on a continuum of improvement. You can think of it more as an as human habitat, as an evolved human ecosystem, one that continues to adapt and change to changing circumstance. In the what we call the suburban experiment, the 20th century way of building in North America that we firmly established after World War II and then continued to expand upon, this is a development pattern where we build things all at once, at, you know, at scale, and we build them to a finished state. So when we build them, they're designed to not change. If you think about that just from a human hubris standpoint, on the one hand, we have this evolutionary pattern that was essentially 
developed for us over thousands of years of human experimentation and how to build cities. And what humans of the past found is that cities need to be able to adapt and change and grow and, and, and morph into, from different circumstances and pressures. They need to be natural, complex ecosystems. Today, we've gone in and said, nope, we're very, very smart people. We know exactly what should be here forevermore, for all of eternity. And so we're going to go out and we're going to build something. And then we're going to consider it done. And we're going to put all these things in place, whether it be homeowners associations or zoning codes or financing requirements or what have you, to ensure that what is there never, ever changes at all. There's no metamorphosis. There's no evolution. And anyone who's looked at this to any depth, anyone who's studied complexity or, or what have you, recognizes that that traditional development pattern is strong and resilient because it is adaptable and flexible and changeable. The new suburban experiment is very, very fragile, largely because it refuses to yield. It, it will not change and adapt. It has two scenarios and it's a binary outcome. It either works or it fails. And there really is not a lot of squishy in between. And so we've created a development pattern that predominates all of our cities in North America that is resistant to change. And, and because of that, very brittle and fragile. Yeah. And you and I are both very much involved with the, the Congress for the New Urbanism. And we have... Uh, colleagues and friends that are actively building some wonderful developments and hopefully doing so in such a way that takes and in, incorporates a lot of what made some of our traditional towns and villages prior to the explosion of the automobile and the suburban experiment. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important you, you touched upon something there that you don't want to, even then, even if you build the most perfect sort of thing, perfect in air quotes here, it'll it be inherently fragile if you don't also have a mechanism in there so that you have the ability for that natural evolution, that incremental change that needs to take place. And we're seeing this in a lot of cities that are specifically very popular places like an Austin, like San Francisco, where suddenly you start to see this pressure of, you know, hey, we need to evolve. But then you have people who are already in place saying, no, 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 we don't want change. We don't want you to have that ability to change. You know, we don't want the ADUs. We don't want that, you know, that thickening of the housing stock. Uh, speak a little bit to that. Yeah, you're, you're totally on to something. You know, I, I think the, the, the new urbanists have done a fantastic job in essentially resurrecting, you know, in a Lazarus kind of sense, bringing back the, the knowledge of how to build the traditional development pattern. The thing that has, I, I think, come into high contrast or high relief because of that, you know, the, the new urbanists first started building and, and let's, I, I was with them on this. And so this was an evolution that I think we made simultaneously. They were just building better versions of a suburb, uh, you know, all at once to a finished state again. And, you know, they performed way better financially. They performed way better from a, a, a walkable, bikeable standpoint. They, they, were, they were more livable places, but they were also static, just like the financing requires, just like the zoning requires. You know, they fit into that kind of modern static framework. 
I, I think the CNU, the, the the players in the CNU that you and I know have, I think, recognized that, you know, static doesn't work. And so they've started to, to push for these incremental evolutions and, and to allow that. If you look at most cities today, because the decline has become overwhelming in a lot of places, even in an affluent, successful place like Austin, you see neighborhoods that are in serious decline, despite you know enormous property values and enormous amounts of wealth. Go to cities that are not doing as well. You know, go to a, a Cleveland, go to a Detroit, go to an Akron, and, and you see decline everywhere. What we have given as an option is basically we will, as, as, as cities, freeze 95% of this area under glass. And we will not allow any change or evolution, will not allow any single family homes to be converted into duplexes, will not allow anybody to meet that housing demand that's overwhelming by converting their garage into a, an apartment. Nope, can't do any of those things. But what we will allow is in the 5% of the area that, that we're going to designate, we will allow big developers with large you know, uh, projects to come in, wipe out entire blocks, and transform it into something radically different, something not recognizable from what was there. And in Austin, you see this in, in spades, just you know, massive change at one period of time. And that just entrenches the notion that I don't want my neighborhood to be that. And so at every level of the debate, whether it is the way we finance things on a secondary market, whether it's at City Hall, the way we zone things and put our building codes and our regulations in place, or whether it's a neighborhood level, the way we talk about growth and development and perceive it, there is now built in resistance to any type of change because the changes that we see are so radical, so jarring, so disconcerting that I just don't, I, like, I don't want to be part, I don't want that anywhere near me. So I will fight even the smallest change because I've been conditioned to see change as bad. And that's just, not, that's not healthy. Yeah, exactly. It's really unfortunate because then then you end up seeing the that resistance to the codes and and the you know the the land use uh, you know documents that are in place currently, which has perpetuated the the suburban sprawl model. We we've made the easiest thing to do the most destruct the most destructive way to build. You know, like the easiest thing for a developer to do. And there's like, you take Austin, there's overwhelming demand for new housing in Austin. There's only two ways to meet that demand right now that are on the table. The one is to utterly transform neighborhoods in large leaps in ways that are dislocating and disconcerting to people in many ways that, that are ra rationally, they rationally oppose it. And the other way is to just go way, way out on the edge and build the, the cheapest, you know, most kind of cookie cutter types of developments over and over and over and over in a way that's literally bankrupting the area. These are two bad choices, right? These are two like not, not very good choices. Yeah. So I think you uh, coined the term uh, or, or the phrase, you know, being able to do the next you know, by by right, every person, every landowner should have the ability to go that next increment uh, higher of intensity or density or whatever the word is. 
Right. Yeah. The next, the next increment of intensity is the way we talk about it. And it's funny because that was a revelation for me that came out of the CNU and came out of Andres Duani's work and, and the smart code. The original version of the smart code at CNU was a, a form-based code. So just for the, the non-coding people, I did a, a decade or more of, of uh, coding work with cities. So let me, let me just give a brief 101. Most of our zoning codes today are use-based codes. They define this kind of static place and they worry obsessively about how you're using your property. Are you using it as a single family home or a duplex? Are you using it as a, a coffee shop or a, uh, a tea shop? And there will be different standards between, you know, an electrician and a carpenter, even though they basically, you know, function the same. They'll have totally different regulations because we regulate the use. Form-based codes worry far less about the use, what you're doing with the property, and worry about how it interacts from an architecture, from a layout design standpoint with the properties around it. So is your building a good neighbor to the neighborhood? This comes out of the insights of the CNU, which is buildings uh, can have all kinds of different uses, but if they're laid out well and designed well, um, you can walk down a street and have a a, a lo- very large house be a single family house and the next house look the exact same and have eight families in it. And you really can't tell from the outside. It's not a big deal. So the smart code came out and the smart code was one of the earlier versions of form-based codes to try to get at how do we, and I loved, I love the idea, how do we infect city hall? How do we get like a new, they've got a certain chassis of operating. How do we put like a new operating system in place in city hall without having to like be anti-government and anti-city and anti, you know, like fire everybody and bring new people in? How do we take the existing framework and just put a new set of operate, like an operating system update in place? And that was the smart code. The smart code had embedded in it, and it's very early version, an idea that once a generation, it was a little bit clunky, but but let's let's the genius of it is that it, it recognized that we need to iterate and change up to a higher level of of intensity. And so what it was embedded in it is if you were in like a T2, you could go to T3, which is slightly more intense. And every 30 years, the code would automatically update to do that. So if you were sitting there in a T3 zone, you knew that at some point within the next 30 years, this will be a T4 zone. And I looked at that and I thought, okay, that's a little bit of a clunky way to do it. And in fact, when they started to go out and, and enact it, people pushed back on that. They didn't like it. I said, but but the idea was sound. The, the idea was genius. The underlying idea that neighborhoods need to evolve and adapt and change is exactly right on. And so I just, I spent a long time thinking about how would you actually implement something like that? Um, because this is the way cities literally grew for thousands and thousands of years. They grew incrementally like this. You would take very small little startup buildings and, you know, evolve them to be slightly more intense. And then over another generation, evolve them to be slightly more intense. And you, you can look at these photos and you have, you know, little pop-up shacks that end up to be Times Square. And it doesn't happen all at once. It happens over generations and generations and generations of evolution. 
Yeah, Chuck, let's let's stick with that because what I'll do is I'll I'll in the show notes I'll have a link to some of the uh, the photos that you have and some of the articles that you've done. Use your city, your use your town, Brainerd, Minnesota as an example and you know take us through, you know, the pop-up shacks that those lumberjacks pulled together and then how it evolved over time and then also how it devolved. Right. I was, I was fascinated with this because I, I, there's a restaurant up the street from where I live and, and I've gone there for years. It was where my grandparents wanted to go after church every Sunday. And we'd walk into this restaurant. There were all these old timey photos on the wall. That was kind of their shtick. And as an adult, I was looking at one of these and I look kind of closely because yeah, I never, I've never seen this street in real life. You know, it's an old timey photo. I assumed it was somewhere else. And there was a little note on it that said Front Street Brainerd. And I looked and I'm like, well, I, this is Front Street in Brainerd. Like, how can, uh, how can that be it on this photo? It looks nothing like that. I wound up that that was a photo taken in 1904. There was a circus train coming through the middle of town. People kind of lined up along the streets and they took this photo. And in researching this, I actually found an earlier photo, one from 30 years earlier, so from 1870, of the same exact street. This was the very first street built in Brainerd. And the first iteration of it, you can think of like, they're, I call them pop-up shacks. They're, they're, they're literally like the, you see the old, you know, Deadwood, fo- uh, you know, show or, um, I, 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 what was the uh, what was the Val Kilmer one where he was Doc Holliday Tombstone? You you look at like that old Tombstone movie, and you, you they're walking around in this downtown that's just like like a movie set. It's literally just like popped up front stores. That's what my city was back in 1870. It was just this little collection of stuff people hammered up and and had little one room shacks along the street, and. Over time, what you saw was that more and more people moved to this city. This city became like the city of the ones around here that were pop-up shacks at that time. Of the five or six of them around here, mine was the one that kind of beat the other ones out. The other ones went away. You can still see them on the plat maps because they exist, but they never really matured. Mine matured. And and because more and more people moved here, the underlying land values continued to rise. That rising land value actually created this natural redevelopment pressure where ultimately people would say, well, this land is really valuable. It's just got a junky little shack on here. I'm going to buy the shack, tear it down, build a two, three-story building. And in a generation, what you have on this exact same street are these beautiful, gorgeous two and three story wood buildings, nice symmetry, nice windows. It's it's a really nicely laid out street. If you keep going forward, and I found another photo that was in the mid 1940s. So about 40 years after that circus parade coming through town, the same exact street now has buildings that are brick and granite. Building these these little wood shacks were torn down. I don't think they burned down because it would have burned down more than just the one. But you know, you see, like every now and then they they would tear these places down because they got old. You know, you've got to maintain them. And with the land values going up and up and up, it justified a, a more valuable building. And so, you know, the the wealthiest people in town would buy the center of the city tear down these buildings that were 30, 40 years old and build nice banks and nice hotels and and buildings that were gorgeous. 
sadly, I went out and took a photo of the exact same street today. You know, the old theater is gone. The old hotel is gone. The bank is gone. Um, there's a new bank there. It's got a huge parking lot and a bunch of suburban, you know, shrubs around it. The rest of it is uh, vacant buildings and empty parking lots. And it's really quite startling because you you recognize that for a long period of time, the highest the highest and best use in my city was a new, better, improved building. And the fact that as the city grew, that that kind of fire of growth, the engine that was driving the community just was prompting this ever, ever level of improvement. Then we reached a point in time where the highest and best use was to tear down the buildings and make them parking. Because, you know, we thought the convenience of being able to get places was the, the greatest value. And the reality is it left down, down a shambles. The buildings have lost value. They've stagnated in value. The stagnation has allowed us to tear them down and turn them into parkings, which is actually zero value or very low value. And despite having millions of dollars of infrastructure in place, we no longer have the tax base downtown to sustain that. It's, it's, over half parking lots now, and of the half that remains, a lot of that is vacant. It's a very tragic thing what we've done. Yeah, there's actually an irony to what you just said in terms of the the value of those places downtown, because part of the epiphany that you had is when you really started to look at the the difference between the new way of doing things and the old way of doing things and the actual financial return. Here's the, here's the thing that I think will blow people's mind. So if we take a snapshot of the city in 1945, which I think that was when the last photo was taken of that set of three that I've got, that I've researched. And we look at the wealth that was there and, and we could put that in like present dollars what we've seen is that the tax base in downtown has shrunk dramatically, dramatically. It is a it is a tiny fraction of what used to be there. So what used to be there was far more substantive, far more wealthy, far more valuable than what is there today. Yet when we look at the nine core blocks of the downtown and we compare that to any similar size area of commercial development or even residential development, any similar size area throughout the entire region, including all the big box stores, the mall, the whatever it is, you can do a one apples to apples comparison of that nine square blocks, which is about 20 acres, and any 20 acres of development anywhere. And it absolutely dwarfs it in terms of financial productivity. That nine acres in the downtown is worth, you know, double the best big box development out on the edge of town. The, the most, the, the development that we look at as like the pinnacle, the apex of the current development pattern, that is worth half in an apples to apples comparison of what our rundown, dilapidated, blighted downtown is worth. What that should just tell us, and this is kind of, I think the spooky thing, is that our ancestors and we can use the broadest definition of that because we can go around the world and see different cultures from everywhere that we're doing very similar things. When our ancestors built human ecosystems, human habitat, they built it in such a financially productive way that even with a century of blight and decline and neglect, it still outperforms everything we're building today. 
And, and that's just the byproduct of a culture that had to endure. The, the way that I would think of this is if no one's going to save you and you absolutely have to be here tomorrow, like you want to build something that, that withstands, you do ridiculously productive things. It, it, we nostalgize in, in our culture, the Native American culture, and, and for, for, good, for very good reasons. But I think one of the main reasons is because it's so foreign to ours. The idea that you would kill a buffalo and you would use every single piece of that buffalo for something. We, we look at that and we marvel. But the reality is, is that they were just poor and frugal. And, and you had to be innovative and make use of every single part of the buffalo because you didn't have stuff to waste. If we look back at traditional cities, what we see is that these people were evolved to build habitat that was incredibly productive because they were poor and they didn't have stuff to waste. Today, in our affluence, we have just spread out across this broad landscape and just thrown away an astounding, just a, a totally debilitating amount of resources because we've, we felt we were rich. And you know, I think now that we realize that we're not, those traditional development patterns become like a key to piecing this all back together. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we move on, I want to reemphasize that in that nine block area of the, the downtown, there were some buildings that survived. And so you do see some of the old historical buildings that are there. They're quite beautiful, uh, stone and brick and, and whatnot. And the beauty is it's, it's multiple businesses, there's a great deal of flexibility that takes place w within those buildings. There's even a little bit of, of uh, residential, I think, mixed in for here and there. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the beauty, I think, and, and we'll use this as a, as a really quick illustration for the listeners, is that you, as you were grappling with this, you used a... Uh, matching property, the Taco John's property and uh, a neighboring property that was, you know, wasn't even as attractive and productive, you know, in air quotes again, as the, the two and three story buildings in the actual downtown area. Tell the story of Taco John's because I think it'll drive the point home of what you were trying to, to talk about in terms of financial return. Well, out on the edge of town in the 1920s, we had a, a new neighborhood go in. So a hundred years ago, the city was expanding incrementally out and they put in this new neighborhood. And at the time, what you would have done, and you have seen this in any city around the world, is that the new neighborhood would have been like pop-up shacks. They would have been very similar to that 1870 photo where you had just, you know, little makeshift buildings on the edge of town. And as the city would continue to grow and the land values would increase, those places would redevelop and become more intense. That's human habitat. That's how our ecosystem is formed. What happened when these places were built is that we had the depression in World War II, and then we developed this new experiment, this new development pattern, and we skipped right over these and started building out on the edge. So my entire life, and I think you know, we could say my parents' life too, these places have stagnated. You have three blocks that were pawn shops, the crappy liquor stores. There was a, a barber there that would do the, the old-timey flat tops. I looked at, uh, when I was starting my business, I looked at renting a spot here. You could rent a storefront on any of these blocks for $200 a month. So these are very like low rent, cheap places. 
one of these blocks, we as a city were able to induce a developer to buy the entire block tear it down and build a brand new Taco John's and Taco John's for the people. It's like a, it's like a Taco Bell, but a Midwestern one. So like I, I, I've gotten to call it now like Norwegian Mexican food. I happen to like it uh, sadly, but you know, that's what you're talking about. We, we really like Taco John's in Minnesota more than Taco Bell. And and we don't have some of the other ones that, that you all have down there in Texas. The, the Taco John's takes up an entire block. And so it makes for a very good apples to apples comparison because we can look at the block next door and see it's the same size and area shape from the, in terms of our municipal corporation, our local government, it has the same cost of providing service to. So these are in a sense, the same investment, but that old blighted block is worth when we add up the value of all the different properties on the block, that entire block is worth 78% more than the Taco John's block. The Taco John's block just has one drive-through restaurant. It's got all the parking and green space and all the stuff you're required. So it meets the code perfectly. When you look at those two different development styles, it's exact same area, same size. That old blighted block, despite being run down, despite being junky, despite paying $200 rent, despite being a place we have literally said in our zoning book and in our plans that we want to demolish and get rid of, has 79% more taxes being paid off of it than the Taco John's does. That, when I ran those numbers, blew my mind because it's completely counterintuitive to basically every policy of development that we have in place today. What we should be doing is taking that little blighted block and all those little shops, which are in very poor condition, Granted, I mean, this is blight. I mean, it's not doing well. But we should say, okay, instead of demoing this and putting something very low value in, very static and, 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 and fragile in, what do we do to get these buildings going in their traditional pattern again? How do we get people to paint the storefronts, fix them up, put a little bit of love into them. How do we get them to the point where they ultimately want to put a second story and a third story on? How do, you know, what do we do? And the answer is, and I, I think this is why you and I uh, have found a lot of common ground. The answer is we've got to make the neighborhood more bikeable. We've got to make the neighborhood more walkable. We have to make it more of an, a neighborhood again, as opposed to a place you just drive past. And that is a completely different set of public investments and priorities and ways of looking at a, at a community. Yeah. And I guess the connection between active towns and strong towns might not be as obvious for some of the listeners. And I made the point to you back in 2013 when I made my uh, upper Midwest active towns tour circuit and stopped in, in in Brainerd, Minnesota. And I said to you, you know, face to face, I said, you know, Chuck, a strong town is inherently an active town because of that ability to be able to use human power to be able to get to meaningful destinations and to be able to live a healthier, more vibrant, active lifestyle. So let me let me take this in two directions, because I, I think, first of all, you helped me understand something that I didn't grasp. Um, you actually corrected me once on something. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I was, com I was saying Brainerd is not a very walk, my, my town. And this is when I was living way out on the edge I, I, and I was driving in and I would experience the walking and biking in a very limited sense. 
you know, it, it was, it was a side thing that I did, not the way I got around. You said, this is a very walkable, bikeable city. You've, you've got a great city for biking and walking. And I said, you, John, no, uh-uh. Now that I live here, you, you're a hundred percent right. This is a great city for biking and walking. Could be way, way better, but it's a great, it's a great place. And so I, you know, I was wrong. You were very right. And you were experiencing it on the ground, you know, in a way that I wasn't. I think that's well, an important talk, thing. Yeah. I, and I think it's it's helpful to kind of interject a visual for folks of sort of the triad. Um, now you actually do live in, in the downtown area. And so there's a, there, there's a little bit of this triad between where you where your house is now. And I, I have a visual because you took me over into the neighborhood where I think you ended up buying. Yeah, I did. Because it's my okay. favorite neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's your favorite neighborhood. But there, this triad, this, this triad, that I'm, I'm visualizing right here and we'd like I'd like you to try to explain for the listeners is where you live now and you know like you said it was built right around the turn of the century and then where your office is which is over near the train tracks and where there's this you know sort of industrial kind of old beautiful old buildings and then where the downtown is and what I did was when I showed up in town I you know pulled my folding bike my Brompton a foldable bike out. And I zipped around and, and explored the town, the city for the better part of a, of a day before I actually met up with you. And the distances, that's the whole point is the proximity was there. Yes. The environment could use some TLC. In other words, we can do some tweaks to be able to make it more appropriate from an all ages and abilities perspective. Absolutely. But the proximity was there that, hey, this is inherently walkable, bikeable. We shouldn't just assume that because we always got in our car to drive from the office to the downtown for, for lunch, that that's necessarily, it, it's, it's inherently walkable, bikeable. You can, it's close enough to do that. It's very interesting because now that I walk and bike, most places I go, I start to run into people doing likewise. And I noted in my book, you know, I said, most of these people are poor. They're people who don't have a choice. That doesn't make them not very, very brilliant people. They're, they're really smart people. And so I just started like, understanding where they walked because the brilliance of where they walk is that they figured out the best place to walk, the place that's safe, the place that's, uh, you know, the most comfortable because they do it all the time. That's what they do. And I discovered all these like shortcuts and side paths and different things because I, I started living at that scale. What is really interesting is that, yeah, I actually, when I first moved here would bike to work and you know, based on where I lived before and what I, what I perceived as the distances, I'm like, well, this is my office is bikeable. I had to stop biking because I would get to work too quick. I'm one who likes to listen to audiobooks and listen to podcasts. And I like to have time to think and meditate. And my commute was always that it was like, you know, 25 minutes of me being able to listen to a book. Now my commute was like three minutes when I biked <laughs> and I'm like, well, that that's too quick. Like I can't do that. And so now I walk most times and it, it, it still only takes me like 12 minutes, like, you know, 15 minutes. Sometimes I'll take longer routes and go in different places so I can just get a little bit more thinking time, a little bit more meditative time. But you're, you're absolutely right. The value that we have here is that things are close. 
The struggle that we have and the thing that I was identifying as really a non-walker, non-biker is that the actual biking, walking infrastructure is made for cars. It's, it's not, it's not there. It's an afterthought to anything else. As now someone who bikes and walks, I appreciate that closeness. Like it's really, it would be really tough to go out to the neighboring suburban city of Baxter and they can put in trails all over the place and maybe make it on paper bike and walk. But most people won't bike and walk because the distances are so big here. It's they're literally so close. I mean, the downtown we're having this struggle right now because there's a group that wants to build a parking ramp in the downtown. They think that's the salvation for these empty lots. And, you know, I've tried to point out like, look, you have 5,000 people that live within four or five blocks of the downtown, like a ridiculously close, easy walk that don't perceive that as being easy because of all these kind of car oriented obstacles we put in the way. But when you start walking it, and my kids, my kids walk to school now, that's, I mean, it is so ridiculously close. It's almost embarrassing how close it is. I'm embarrassed that I ever thought it was far. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like I've seen my neighbors. Um, I have a, I have a sweet neighbor, a uh, family with four girls. They're the same age as our girls. So I kind of, I, I know them. I like them. They're very nice people, but they live a block away from us. And we were all meeting at the park once and the park is a block and a half the other way. So for us, it's a block and a half for them. It's two and a half blocks. We were meeting at the park one day, they drove and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I looked at them and it was not like, there was no part of me that wanted to shame them or felt like, like condemn them. Like, what are you doing? It was the recognition that before I walked, that was me. Like, I, right. like it, it was so um, easy and natural to do, to get in your car, to go two and a half blocks because, you know, that's just what you did. There was no like lack of parking. There's no, you know, it was just very easy to do. Like, why wouldn't you do it? But, but I recognized, and I almost felt bad for them because I recognized like how poor a perspective you have of how, how like limited a perspective you have when you don't recognize how that two and a half blocks is so short and, and not only short, but I mean, let me add this other component to it, which, which goes a little bit off the financial thing, but walking two and a half blocks with your family is a beautiful experience. You know, not only the exercise and the fresh air, uh, the delight of, of running into people and seeing your neighbors and recognizing the plants in their yard that they put in so caringly and lovingly and, and the little, you know, ornamentation of the, of the windows that they've just painted, but, but getting to talk to your kids and spend that time. And, you know, I, I, I am so grateful now for the capacity to be able to, to, to walk and experience this neighborhood that way that I almost feel robbed when I don't do it, when I don't get to do it. Yeah. Um, do you remember the other thing that I uh, mentioned to you and Jordan ab about human behavior and how humans are a herding species and how important it was to be conspicuous in your activity of living that active lifestyle? Not only do I remember it, it it's I've ingested it into who I am. So it, it's very hard for me here to be a strong towns advocate in my hometown. And part of that is because it's different when I am invited someplace and come in 
and talk to people and can help them. Here, when I show up, it's very hard to to not be like the know-it-all person who like, well, I have an answer for this and I have an answer for that. I've been on the planning commission and I volunteered for things. And what I have found the way that I can be a leader here and the things that I can do that advance the ball the most is to just be that conspicuous user of the system. Most of the people who bike in my city bike on the sidewalks and they bike on the sidewalks because a, they don't know they're allowed in the street. B, they don't feel safe out in the street. And C, they're kind of like culturally shamed and ridiculed for being out in the street. And so what I do just to try to help raise awareness is I am as conspicuous as possible when I bike in the street. I also do things, and it it bothers my wife a little bit, but I will uh, step out into traffic, not in the middle of a lane, but you know, you stand on the edge and you wait your turn to cross the street. If I have the right of way, if it's my turn to cross, I will take one or two steps off the curb and I'll actually stand on the edge of the street, not in the lane. If the person doesn't recognize me or keeps going through, I don't want to die. But I also am trying to, in a sense, not be passive. I'm trying to assert that people cross here and that people walk here. And, you know, when I am able to walk with people, when I'm able to, you know, be around my neighbors, I will model this behavior for them because there is a certain, you you know, you call it the pack mentality, the, the idea that we mimic each other. I think it's a little bit like there's a certain momentum to it when there's more and more, the more we signal to each other that this is how we behave, the more people will behave this way. I'm trying to, in my own subtle way, turn this neighborhood into the best walking, biking neighborhood in town. And and we're not going to be able to do that through infrastructure spending as easily as we are through cultural change. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about our current situation that we're in. So we're recording this on Monday, April 6th, 2020, and we're in the midst of the coronavirus COVID-19 uh, pandemic and you know, pretty much nationwide, we're in a state of stay at home. And what we are seeing is that we, we, we know and, and public health officials are, are getting this out and city officials are, are reinforcing this, that it is important for people to get out of the home and to, to get out and get some exercise. But when, when doing so, make sure that you have physical distancing and, 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 and be safe and, and be mindful of that. And so what we end up having is a de facto transformation of our streets, especially our residential streets into car-free zones or nearly car-free zones. And I don't know what you're experiencing in your neighborhood, but here in in our little uh, niche of Austin, which is immediately post-World War II, so cute little cottages that uh, were, were built in 1946 and, and, you know, as you get closer to the downtown area, closer to, you know, the 1930s and, and the 1920s, but uh, there are no sidewalks. And so inherently, every street is a shared street. Inherently, we have a perpetual open streets event that's happening. And so one of the things that, that, you know, I reinforced about that conspicuousness is the, the waving and the smiling and, and, and reinforcing this. I'm seeing that every day now. 
people are just naturally taking to the streets. They're, you know, waving at each other at a distance. And they're, you know, we're also seeing more people exploring. What are you seeing on the ground there? It's, it's, it's amazing. It's astounding. And it's, there's a part of me and I'm, I'm trying not to have my own confirmation bias and my own, um, you know, impose my own belief system on, on the future. But in some ways, it's hard to see us going back just because of how amazing this has been. So we are, and I'm in central Minnesota. It's the first week of April and snow has just, I, I think you would say it's gone now. There's little patches of it here and there where it was stacked up in the winter. But for the most part, it's the snow in the last few days has gone away. And with that, we had our first 50 degree days, 50 degrees in Minnesota, just to translate into Texas is like a 75 degree day for you. <laughs> so this is people out walking in shorts and t-shirts and just like, oh my gosh, spring is it's just beautiful. It's lovely. And so what, what you see is that like naturally this time of year, the place comes alive with people getting out because of the coronavirus and because everyone has been kind of cooped up, there's even more of an impetus to go out and do this. And we've not reached the point where you've seen in some places where they've had to take the streets over because, um, you know, be, because there's so many people on the sidewalks. This is still a, a very kind of low density kind of, you know, small town. But the idea that, you know, you can't go a block without coming across someone is something I've never experienced here ever. And now every time you go out, that is what it is. It's all over the place. And I, th I think the thing that is the most jarring in, in a delightful way is that the street crossings, which were, were, are car dominated, there's a ton of space here given over to vehicles. The street crossings have become something so passive that people do now They'll, when, when we're doing social distancing, they'll, they'll go off the sidewalk and walk a little bit in the street and no one cares because there's no cars. But the other part of this is just how quiet it is. The birds have started to come back now and you go outside and it's just birds everywhere. They're loud. There's no cars. The, the highway that runs through the neighborhood between here and the downtown is quiet and peaceful. And, and I think just the utter realization that this is what people would have experienced 50 years ago, 60 years ago, this kind of silence and tranquility in the middle of the city explains to you a lot of, of how these places used to work. I feel like we're that when I said earlier that I didn't grasp it until I walked it, then I started to understand how close things were, how easy this was, how enjoyable it was. There's a part of me that wishes and hopes that that's the experience that thousands of my neighbors are now having and that they won't be able to unlearn it. You know, when, when, when things in a sense are pushed back to normal, they will still keep that recognition that, oh, downtown is just four blocks away. Oh, the park is just two blocks away. Oh, this walk is very nice and enjoyable. Like, I hope that that stays with them. It's such a powerful insight once you experience it. Yeah, and you mentioned it earlier is that when you start to experience your city and your neighborhood at walking speed and at biking speed, you start to really appreciate it at a, at a whole nother level of intimacy. And, and that's a big part of it. And I, and I do, I'm with you. I'm, I'm very hopeful 
that this is going to be something that we as a society uh, will grab a hold of. Um, we're such creatures of habit. And so now we're creating a different habit pattern of walking, hopefully on a daily basis or going for an easy bike ride, again, right. keeping the the necessary distance that, that we should have. So well, earlier you let, mentioned let me the add, book. Let me add one other yeah. thing here. Because we're, we're also like ridiculously social people. Um, my neighbor, uh, and, and I'll, uh, she's not going to hear this, so I'll say this. She, I think she's a sweet lady. She's also can be a little crotchety at times, you know, a little, little cranky, but she's also just a door. She's also, there's a very sweet, sweet woman. She called me yesterday and she had made me some food she wanted to give to us. I'd given her cookies at Christmas time. So she was giving me my tin back and she filled it up with stuff she made for us. And she asked me to come over and meet her on the sidewalk and, and exchange this. She just wanted to talk. I mean, that, ultimately, like I realized as we're standing there that she just wanted to talk. She just missed human contact. Um, and so I sat and talked to her for 20 minutes. And, you know, we stood six feet away, but it was still beautiful to, to be able to sit and, and chat. I work out on the porch. So I, I, I've, I've worked from home for a long time in the summer uh, in the spring, especially our porch is West facing. And so it kind of has big windows. It kind of has a greenhouse effect. So by the afternoon, it's the warmest place. It's nice. It's just beautiful. I sit out there. My neighbors, you know, the volume of people walking by is up 2000%. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's crazy. The number of people walking by, but here's what is crazy about it. Everyone who walks by wants to wave at you. Everyone who walks by wants eye contact. They want to say hi. They want to acknowledge that you're there. They want you to acknowledge them. They want to be friendly and social in a way that, first of all, driving by in a car, you would never be. But second of all, I think even walking by in the past, there was maybe like a stigma to looking in someone's window, you know, and that stigma has disappeared. It is gone. If you're out on the porch, you are you know, free to wave at and free to wave back. And it's almost rude now not to do it. And even the dog gets into it. He'll stand up and like, look out and be like, Hey, I see you. Uh, nice to see you guys. And that that's a, that's a social shift that I've experienced that I think is, is beautiful, is really beautiful. And, and I, I can concur. We, we've got the same thing happening here. I, I try to, whenever I can get out uh, under our front tree, our, our tree is a, a live oak uh, and, uh, so it's got a little bit of shade there and I can sit out front and it's, it's nice. I mean, people, uh, again, they'll, they're walking by, they're walking their dogs they're with their families, they're, uh, riding their bikes by and exactly the same thing. They're, they're waving, they're going out of their way to say hello. And, and folks are just digging the fact that, uh, you can sort of connect. And the reason why I don't like using the word social distancing is because I think it conveys the wrong thing. I really try to reinforce and say physical distancing for, for, for health and well-being, but we need that social cohesion, that social connectedness. It's uh, Chuck, earlier, I, yeah. I'm, I'm such an, I, I am a massive introvert. I don't know if, if you, if you know that my, my wife and I are both like very introverted people and, and we're, we're the kind of people who, if you go to a party, you got to take the next day off just to like, and we'd sit in separate rooms and read our own books. And, you know, you, you just need some downtime. It's funny because 
I think one of the biggest fears we had of moving into town was neighbors, you know, cause out in the five acres where you were out with us and growing up on the farm, you know, we, we had neighbors, sure, but they were like distant things. We, you know, we didn't, we didn't interact with them regularly. They weren't in our business. We, we had nothing. In fact, on the farm where we had lots of land, we actually knew our neighbors better out of necessity than I did in my exurban place. You know, I, I went decades without talking to any of my neighbors in that place. And so we were worried moving here to town that, you know, well, now we're going to have neighbors and what's that going to be like? And if I had to point to the one thing that has added more value to my life, uh, it has been my neighbors. They're beautiful people. The relationships that I have with them have become very meaningful and not in a way where we all, you know, sit down and have dinners together. I mean, that would be very nice, but I mean, just exchanging pleasantries, exchanging gifts, looking after each other. Uh, my one neighbor now, her, her husband passed away from cancer. She now has cancer. We're over helping clean up, pick up her yard and do things and just like the life lessons, teaching the kids and the gratitude that she has. That has been the biggest surprise, but also the greatest benefit of the lifestyle shift that we made. The walking, biking has been huge, but I think the neighbors and the neighborliness was something that is the exact opposite of what I feared it would be. And in such a beautiful, glorious way. Yeah. And I think in, in intuitively and inherently you, you, you were wanting or at some level, because I know one of the earliest stories that you tell it, you know, from the old house was the sense of isolation, the disconnectedness and the epiphany that you had uh, with your daughter and your daughter's, quote unquote, best friend that she came up with. Tell that story real quickly. And then, then I want to move on to your book. Yeah, it, that was, I, I think what that was more was the recognition that my own introvertedness was, was costing my daughter. Um, so, you know, we have this kid, she's born in 2004. We have two daughters, but the first one born in 2004, when we lived out in the exurban place. And, you know, we, we're active and involved and take her for walks and do all the stuff. And we'd signed up for all the ch early childhood stuff. And so we, we had her in gymnastics and dance before she went to school and all this. First day of school, she goes to school. You know, we're standard parents, all excited, drop her off, give her big hugs, you know, all this, pick her up. How'd your day go? And she kept talking about this one friend of hers named Holly. I met this new girl. Her name is Holly. And, you know, at, at that point, at that age, it's a lot of the superficial things. So Holly's favorite color was pink and Holly's hair was blonde and Holly had blue eyes. And so her and Chloe had so much in common, all the important things in life, you know, the same. And she told us that this is my best friend. You know, I, I have this new, I have this best friend. It wasn't very long after that, that we discovered. And, and this is, this is not an exaggeration. Like I'm not, I've not embellished this story at all in any way. She lived directly across the street from us, her house. The driveway was slightly off from ours, but only like 40 feet. But their house was literally right across the street from our house. It, it was, their driveway went back and in the woods. And so you couldn't really see the house. And of course you couldn't see our house from the roadway either, but her best friend lived eight 
her bedroom was 800 feet from Chloe's bedroom. And the two of them had grown up because she had been born in the house across the street as well. The two of them had grown up, lived the first five and a half, six years of their life, 800 feet from what would ultimately be their kindergarten, first grade, second grade best friends, not even knowing the person existed. That's how isolating this development pattern is. And I was just, I mean, as a parent, you see the joy and happiness that other kids bring your children. You see the the joy and happiness uh, that having those relationships creates. And, and I mean, you know, we set up play dates and we'd go do this because the kids love it. They have so much fun. And to the, the recognition that I had put my kid in a situation where she was so isolated from the things that she loved and found value in that we didn't even know her best friend lived across the street. It, it was one of those like gut punches, you know, like what kind of a father am I? You know, what kind of parents are we that this is what we would do to our kids? So yeah, that that was a hard one to work through and and really kind of those eye-opening situations of the the pain of this development pattern we've created. Yeah, and what's wonderful about uh, the the Strongtown story is that you're so open about how you sort of learned these lessons and went through this because it, it in in large part is a personal journey that you've gone through. So your book, you finally published a a book uh, out with mainstream uh, publications. You 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 published other books, but you'd self published them before. This one is published by Wiley. Um, it's Strong Towns: A Bottom Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Congratulations on getting this out. I know you've been on a nationwide book tour trying to promote this, but then this happened. Right. Talk about that. Um, Well, we just, for Strong Towns, the last decade, I've done 50 or 60 talks a year around the country. And so the book tour was just 60 in two and a half months. <laughs> so I was doing two, three talks a day. We were like hitting all kinds of places. It was, it was, uh, it was an insane sprint, but yeah, I, I have been, you know, I, I started strong towns as a blog. I started writing and writing was my way to kind of think through some of these problems. You know, I, I, I'd certainly, I, you know, and I, you point this out, it, it is a deeply personal story because what I have discovered is that every one of my assumptions has been wrong. And every one of the things that I thought I knew has been wrong. And I've been writing because writing is a way that you figure out in a sense, what you do know and what you don't know. And in my case, there was a lot that I didn't know or a lot that I didn't understand. Since the early days, I've been having publishers and and people want me to write a book, but I was just never ready to, And a big part of why I wasn't ready to is I didn't really have a good answer to what do we do now? You know, it's one thing to say this development pattern is, is insolvent. It's making us broke. It's, uh, it's fragile. It's creating all these problems. But then the, the, the pushback always was, well, what would you do different, Chuck? And my answer was largely, well, I don't know, but I wouldn't do that, (laughs) you know? Um, which is not very helpful when there's literally trillions of dollars a year invested in continuing to do what we're doing. So it, it, I got to the point where I had finally felt like through your work, through work of 
people like Mike Lydon, who you chatted with through Victor Dover and, and a lot of the CNU stuff. And then a lot of kind of, I, I think the financial stuff that we at Strong Towns immersed ourselves in and got to understand in a way that a lot of urbanist places hadn't was ready to actually write the book. And so the, the book is, I think we can think of it as three parts. It explains why our cities are broke. It explains how that's not really uh, fixable in terms of like tweaking the current system. And then it sets up a framework for how local leaders can start to take things under their own in their own hands and start to grow a place that is strong and resilient. Here's a, here's a blueprint and a plan for actually fixing this in your place. And Wiley has been a great partner. They allowed us to get this in every bookstore in the country and, and in every platform where they sell books. And it's been, uh, it, it's a, it's a very good way to get a one-on-one intro to here's what a strong nouns, you know, set of ideas are. And that, that's been the great thing. I would interject that it's even deeper than a 101. Um, what I loved about the book is that it, for even people who are diehard strong towns followers, it just goes much deeper. And there's so much new stuff in there. It's not a rehash of just the old stuff. There's a little bit of the old, but there's familiar themes and familiar stories. But then you go into a whole nother level of, of, I don't want to call it intensity, but, you know, just for instance, you know, some of the stuff that you did with Ann Sussman and Justin B. Hollander's work with cognitive architecture and going into understanding stuff uh, from a human behavior level, Magnificent. Just absolutely wonderful. So how have you pivoted? Because obviously you're not able to hit the road right now to do the book tours. And I know you had some stuff literally on the schedule for this month. Uh, I think our, uh, Austin was supposed to be on the schedule very soon as well. What have you and your team done to sort of pivot and keep the message fresh, keep it going? And because uh, I know you guys are working really hard right now. Well, the big thing that we do is share this message. And our theory of change, our understanding of how change happens, is that we're not going to outspend the development community. We're not going to outspend the, the federal government, Wall Street. What we have to do, and, and this is kind of a, a maybe a, an off-color analogy today, but this is how we've talked about our movement for years, is that we were an intellectual virus. Um, what we needed to do was actually infect society with a different set of thoughts because the thoughts were so powerful and so obvious that once people understood them, they couldn't unlearn them. And then they would become open to a, a different approaches and different ideas. And so what we have done is we've constructed an organization where we go out and share this message with people in person. Now that we're not, look, what do we do? Um, and we've had on the, uh, the blackboard in a sense, or the whiteboard or whatever you would do today, we've had on our digital board, the idea of creating some online courses as a way to, to, to perpetuate this, to do this for, for people who wanted to delve deeper, uh, but couldn't make it to an event or, you know, I'm one person, I can only do so many events a year, couldn't make it to your place. And so we just accelerated that. We released our first course this week. We're releasing our first course, so Strong Towns 101. It is a, a three-hour, broken up into 18 different lessons, going into all the different aspects of, of Strong Towns. Over the next nine months, we're going to one a month issue a different course 
delving into transportation, into housing, into economic development, into different aspects of how you go out and build a strong town with a very specific emphasis on how we rebuild post-COVID-19. How, how do we go out now that we've had this kind of economic shift and this kind of cultural awareness, how do we go out and start rebuilding our communities to be strong towns? Um, and so that's been, it's amazing because this time has afforded us a lot of uh, leisure time in the sense that I'm eating more meals with all my family because the kids aren't in dance. We're taking family walks every night. Uh, we're spending some time playing games and watching movies, but I've never worked harder in my life. <laughs> I've never, I've never had like less sleep and more work time because we're scrambling to get all this out there for people because there's this insatiable demand for what do we do now? And we're trying to help people grasp that. Yeah. And, and, and I can attest it was, uh, it was a, quite difficult for us to be able to get to this schedule because you are so incredibly busy right now. Uh, so this is going to actually hit the airwaves on the 13th. And that very next day, you have the uh, Economics of Development 202 webinar coming up. And then later in the week, you have the Ask Me Anything webinar. A lot of the content that you're doing in terms of outreach is in that format of Zoom meetings and webinars. Talk a little bit more about that. We've we've always been very Zoom fluent, and we've been you know for years now doing a once a month uh, web broadcast where we would uh, either do some type of Ask Me Anything, which is very popular for our group. There's tons of questions and and things, but also you know bring people in and have conversations about about issues and. We just accelerated that. We said, we're going to do that twice a week now. Instead of once a month, let's do it twice a week. And so every Tuesday, indefinitely now, we're doing a, a, a some type of presentation, some type of knowledge sharing for free for people. And, you know, we want people to be able to access this for free. And then on, on Thursday, we have a Ask Me Anything follow-up. Again, we're going to run those indefinitely until things kind of change and, and we're back out traveling around again. We've created, we have a community page. It's actually community.strongtowns.org, which is our own social network for people wanting to uh, connect with others and figure out how they can start to make their place stronger. And so the, the web broadcast is kind of a conduit between the two. We uh, deliver, like Joe will be doing the one uh, this week, you know, the, the economics of development. We then ask people to go to the network site and enter their questions in. We'll have an hour of asking Joe questions, but the ones that don't get answered, there's tons of people on that site answering questions and talking to people and trying to figure things out. We're really using this as a way to let people know and let people be participate in the rebuilding of their communities. Because whether it is, you know, the, the way I always sign off on our podcast is keep doing what you can to build a strong town. And the idea there is what you can do might be run for mayor, city council. It might be buy a property and rebuild it. It might be, the, but it might just be that you're the guy who bikes in the street and leans out at the, the crosswalk, uh, you know, to encourage other people to, to feel comfortable walking the street. This is an all hands on deck movement and we don't require you to be a professional. We don't require you to be a, a, a you know, a quote unquote leader in the community to be an actual leader. We just, we just ask you to do what you can 
And so, you know, we've tried to create this platform where people can find what it is they can do that's within their capacities and, and, and their abilities to go out and be part of this revolution. Yeah. And it's also a membership-based organization. We are. I mean, the, the, I think there's two things here. First, the way that we spread this message is largely by having people give us $5, $10 a month as members to say, we recognize that the change that's going to happen is when more people hear this message. And so we're going to give you a little bit of resources to help you make that happen. The other part of this is a third of our budget does come from events. You know, we've created a business model at Strong Towns where our mission is to share this message and we get paid to go share this message. So I speak at a lot of conferences and a lot of uh, large events where I am the person that they're selling to get you to come to the conference. And so in a sense, uh, that revenue's all gone away too. So we're kind of scrambling to say, okay, uh, how do we continue to ad adapt this model? So some of these courses that we're putting out will be advanced level like very deep, very technical, and there will be a, a cost to some of them. Um, but we're going to try to keep the bulk of it uh, free and accessible to, to people. That's, our, that's the nonprofit part of our mission. There's a balance, and you get this too, between staying in business to do good and making sure you, you meet your mission. Yeah. So it's March, or it was March. We didn't get to have what would normally happen in March, which was March Madness, but we did have the strongest towns contest. And I see that Watertown, South Dakota won. I have to tell you, I listened to the podcast with the the final four. What a delight. Um, it's funny because years and years ago, there was a website and I, I won't mention them, but they would do a, um, a bracket style competition in March to identify like the worst parking crater or the worst, you know, whatever. And it was pointing out how bad some cities were. And they were almost like shaming cities into doing something about how bad they were. And I looked at this and it just... It, it struck me as like the wrong chord, you know, because the reality is like I look at my town and it's a it's a disaster. Like there's a bunch of things wrong with it, but I've never found anyone willing to change anything when I shamed them about it. And so I just on a whim and this was like five years, six years ago, said we need to have a strongest town competition where we identify and celebrate the cities that are doing the best job. To, to try to make their places better. It, it doesn't mean their place is perfect. It doesn't mean that they've reached some pinnacle. It just means that they're really working at how do we become stronger, better, more prosperous. We ran that the first year and there was a, a little city in Pennsylvania that won. I, I, I'm having a hard time remembering the name right now. Uh, I feel bad about it. Um, it was five years ago. <laughs> well, it's, it was like, I, I, I'm, my mind is stuck on, on, on Trani, which is a city in Southern Italy, but it was, it starts with a T I know. I, I, I feel bad. I'm, I can remember, but every year we've done, we've done this contest now and it's insane to me how much it's grown. Um, we were actually scheduled to do at the end of, of April, the strongest town celebration in Pensacola, Florida, which is our last winner from 2019, we were actually going to now start an annual get together where we would not only name and celebrate the 
winner from that year, but we would invite past winners to come in and share their best practices, the things they've learned, the things that they're doing great that make them the winner of the Strongest Town contest. And so this has grown to be this wonderful, fun overlay to the March Madness basketball competition where we can point out, we start with 16 cities. Like I said, they're not perfect, but they're places that all are doing exciting things. And we can spend a whole month highlighting these local leaders and the wonderful stuff they're doing and the innovation that they have and and, and just giving people some inspiration. And so even in the depth of, you know, shutting down the, the basketball tournament, which is very sad, we've been able to continue our tournament and yeah, we we had Beloit, Wisconsin, and Watertown, South Dakota, two two really fantastic places, and Watertown wound up to be it. And I'm I'm looking forward to once uh, the stay at home order's gone, and we're going to get together, heading over there, and and giving them their award and having a big party with them. Yeah, and I would also uh, include Winona, Minnesota, and Hamilton, Missouri, the other two uh, towns, two cities that rounded out uh, the the final four. Each of those just had some amazing things that they were doing to uh, be a, a truly a strong town and, and a desirable place. You could tell that uh, uh, there's a lot of pride coming out. And I, and I really do see, and, and I've always had this concept uh, with the Active Towns Initiative to try to celebrate the positive things that are out there. We all know that negativity trends and the shaming aspect of it. And, and there's a place for that because there, there can be uh, a little bit of activism and momentum that gets going with that. And, uh, and I know that when it's appropriate, you, the strong towns does support a little bit of that. Um, the, the, the one day of the year that I know that you do that is uh, Black, Friday. On, uh, <laughs> Black Friday. Yeah. The, so talk a little bit about Black Friday so uh, people know what we're talking about. Well, Black Friday came out of the fact that for, for years and years and years, as an engineer and as a planner, I would be in meetings and we would be requiring these massive amounts of parking. And the culture, the idea that always came up was, well, we're going to need it on Black Friday. Well, Black Friday. And I remember this one engineer I worked with and I like him. He's a nice guy, but he's totally wrong. He's like, you know, Chuck, on Black Friday, you know, there's going to be people parking up and down the uh, frontage road there. We're just not going to have enough parking. We, we started doing, and this was, again, this me on a whim. I'm like, damn, it's Black Friday. I'm going to go out and see how much of this parking lot is full. And I went out and I started taking pictures and I'm like, dude, you were totally wrong. You said, oh, we're not gonna have enough parking on Black Friday. Look at this. Here's Black Friday. Like I went out five times and took photos at different times of the day. It was never full. And so I started sharing these and then the hashtag Black Friday parking started to get, started to trend a little bit and other people started to do it and we turned it into an event. Like go out, take photos of your, your, your parking lot on, you know, quote unquote, the busiest shopping day of the year. And uh, let's demonstrate that what we have systematically done is over-designed, over-built, over-specified our parking lots. And we just don't, we need to stop doing this. So there is an aspect of the shaming to it, but more than anything, it's like to get people to be aware of all that empty asphalt and the fact that even when we think we're going to need it, we don't actually need it. Like, let's just stop doing this. 
But we, I mean, we, we have thousands of people do this every year. I, I was at a thing once. I was sitting around a table with a bunch of people who had brought me into a place to speak and they were talking about things. And this is how, this is how big this thing has gotten. One guy gets up and he starts this talk and he's like, I just got to tell you, Chuck, about this thing that we do now. We do this thing called Black Friday parking. It's just some group. They, they started this thing and we, and he goes in and he describes like what they do and all this. And he had no clue that we had started it and that we were the ones who kind of were like roughly organizing it. It had taken on such a life of its own. And, and I, I was, I, I took great pride in that because the, the, you know, the success of any idea is that it grows beyond the origin, right? It becomes something just embedded. And uh, I told them, I said, you made my day. I, that was, that was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So as we, you know, sort of wrap this up, let's just bring active towns and, and strong towns back together again. Talk a little bit about what this has meant for you personally, from a health and well-being perspective of being able to live your life more intentionally and what that really means for other communities as they start moving forward in an understanding that, this is incredibly powerful. You, you mentioned a couple different themes to it. Yes, it's the physical health and well-being, but it's also the the mental, uh, social connectedness uh, aspect of well-being too. It's funny because as an as an engineer, this is not how you're trained to think about things, right? But as a human, it's it's unavoidable. And I think once I stopped looking at my job my calling, my profession, like I was supposed to be rational Mr. Spock and started recognizing that I have a little bit of Captain Kirk in me and that, you know, I also maybe have a little bit of, uh, a, a, you know, just human emotion reacting to these things. I, I started to appreciate just how deeply human our habitat is. I write this in the first chapter of the book, and this is the Ann Sussman, Justin Hollander stuff, is, is just how cities are really designed to make us fully human. And to be fully human is, is a very difficult thing to do in isolation. We are a social species. Um, there are people who live in isolation, and I get that, but it's not the default for, for humankind. We are designed to live in tribes, in groups, in cities, in neighborhoods. We're designed to live with people. I, you know, I have this dog, Gryffindor, and, you know, it's the, it's the first time I've had a lab, labish kind of dog. I've always had Samoyeds. And Samoyeds are part of a pack, but the cues they take from you are more pack cues. Like, is it time to go for a walk? Is it time to, you know, go for a sled, pull the sled? You know, what... But, but the lab is very cued to like your mood as a human. Like, you know, what are you doing? Where are you at? Like, what's going on? And I, I, all the time he's like geared in on me. And I recognize that the, what he's picking up on are the subtle cues, like, you know, the inflection of my voice, what I do with my hands. Here's the scary thing. As humans, and this is why you and I are looking at each other on a video screen as opposed to just doing this, you know, by audio only. As humans, we're also wired to pick up on all these subtle cues from other humans in terms of like what your body posture is, the inflection of your voice, the way I would look at you sideways or straight on or what have you. When you slow down life to a human speed, that two and a half 
mile an hour walking speed or the slightly slower strolling speed, all of these like richness and fullness of, of life of this human experience starts to register with you, whether it is the, the bird that you can hear singing now or the beautiful flowers that your neighbor took the time to put in their front yard, or whether it's the the woman across the street who just needs some human contact, who, who wants to chat, the, the woman next door who's scared because her husband passed away and now she is, is suffering from cancer as well. And just the tenderness of being able to say, you know, I know your yard is not important in this time, but I know it's also important to you. So let me just take that burden off of you so you don't have to fret about it. These are the deeply human things that at the end of the day, uh, you know, ultimately matter. We're going through this quarantine, stay at home order. And my oldest daughter is, is now 15. And my wife and I, have recognized that the time we have as a family in this kind of arrangement is very fleeting. Before this all happened, you know, she has dance four nights a week. She's got friends she's hanging out with on the weekend. When she's home, she's got homework. She's 15, so she's kind of a little bit not into parents anyway. And so all of these things have kind of put this distance between us that I, I think is a very natural. But now that we're all home and stuck together, we've said, let's really lean into this. Let's lean into the fact that we're all going to be together and let's make this a three-week, four-week, six-week, three-month, whatever it is, experience that we remember as time we had together. Hello, that's what life is, right? And if we get to the end of life and say, we never strolled a street together, we never walked downtown for ice cream together. We never enjoyed, you know, the new grass coming up in the park as a, as, as people together. I think something deeply is going to be lost. You and I had a beautiful time once in San Antonio. We walked the river walk together. Um, we left and walked some of the neighborhoods together. You, uh, you taught me the value of, of street trees for cooling, you know, the cooling properties of street trees. Which, well, here, let me tell the story. It was at the tail end of of a, a two to three days that we had, you know, down in San Antonio. We we were down there for the uh, Health and the Built Environment Conference that the university down there uh, sponsored. That next morning, though, we we had a sit down with the city and and other uh, yeah, representatives. Forgot, there were some that. politicians, <laughs> and you know, basically, you came out of this uh, that experience that morning, you, you were quite frustrated and a little bit agitated. We actually had a fairly lengthy drive because we were going to be driving from San Antonio to San Marcos, uh, where you were going to be delivering a, a curbside chat. And uh, I had a friend, Preston Tyree, who was going to meet up with us that evening in San Marcos. And then you and I were going to go our separate ways. You were going to spend some time with family. But you were you were a bit agitated and a little bit frustrated, rightfully so. We don't need to go into why you were frustrated. But I was like, Chuck, I want to show you something. Because where we were at, where we were staying was uh, basically uh, on a strode. It was a hellscape. It was a despotic and place. Yeah. <laughs> it was a despotic place. And I'm, I'm like, 
dude, you gotta, you gotta experience this street. It was one block over from the uh, river walk. It was, I believe it's in the same neighborhood uh, where our mutual friend, Erica Ragsdale lives now. And so I took you over there and it was just amazing to see how quickly your mood changed <laughs> and uh, the, the, you the look on your from, face. You, <laughs> you shifted you, from the, jerk to nice man. <laughs> well, what was, but I mean, so, so You're right. There's there's a, right. there's a lot of lessons there too of yes. how much impact your environment can have on your mood. I mean, you had a sparkle in your eye and you just instantaneously said, we need to capture that. And so you pulled your cell phone out and I'll let you take, take, take so, it from there. And let, let, let me say this, this is what I remember. So you, you brought up the meeting with the San Antonio officials. I forgot about that. Um, you brought up the despotic environment. I forgot about that. I, you, you're jogging my memory because you know what I remember? I remember standing there in that row of trees, uh, these beautiful old, old trees that formed this canopy. Yep. They formed a canopy over the street. I'm from Minnesota. So San Antonio was brutally hot. I mean, I thought this place was hot. I was like, this is a, this is a really hot, oppressive day. And you're like, Chuck, watch this. You said, no, watch what we're going to do. And we walked out of the sun into this canopy. And I, I swear, like the temperature dropped 15 degrees and it just became like nice and cool and just refreshing. It was refreshing. And then we walked back out in the sun and it was oppressive again. And I, I remember that feeling just like cascading over me of just like, it was, it was refreshing. I think that's what it was more than anything else. And so, yeah, I took out my camera, my video camera, and I said, we're going to do a video and I want you to explain this. Like, let's talk about what we're experiencing here. And we, we did capture that. I turned that into a video that, uh, that we released on the website. More than the video, more than any of it, what I remember is I remember just this pleasant experience with you walking down a very beautiful street, just talking about pleasant things. That's, that's my recollection of that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel like this, the scale at what your, you know, when we talk active towns, you know, the scale at which you're operating, the scale at which you're kind of nudging us towards is one that I think allows in. Yeah. I mean, is every day going to be a, a sunny, beautiful, refreshing day? No, but, but what I recollect about that entire trip was not all the negative about it. I recollect this beautiful experience with you. And I think that's was what that pace does for people. Yeah. And this kind of brings us around to what are the little things that we can do to make a difference? Let's wrap this up in a bow. Tell us what that, uh, what your advice is for somebody who's listening to this and saying, okay, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by active towns. I'm inspired by strong towns. What can I do? I feel like there's two basic things. There, there's a ton of, I mean, the book is full of stuff like this, but I, I, I mean, I think there's a, there's a range of things for depending on where you're at in your life. But I think there's two things that are universal for everyone. I think a decade ago, I would have thought these were silly and frivolous. And now I think they're foundational. So I'm going to put them out there. I think the first one is you need to get to know your neighbors. You need to meet them as humans and even if you, they're not your kind of people. And I will tell you, if, if I were like envisioning 
uh, the type of people that I would like, we have a vacant house next to us for sale. And if I visioned like the, the exact family, I would like to move in there. You know, they would have kids that my kids is age, they would be, you know, people who would be interested in town planning. And I don't know, like, well, if I, if I imagine who they were, none of the other neighbors of mine are, meet that they're, they're all, none of them are like that, but I have found joy and happiness and meaning in all of them, despite them being people who are outside of my comfort zone. And I think, you know, the, the base of doing any collective type of work, which is what running a successful community, neighborhood, city is, is, is collective work, is getting to know people on a human level. Cities are not transactional places. They're deeply human places. And so I think starting by meeting your neighbor and just getting to know them as a human being is really critical. The, the other thing I would say is in your life, it can't be understated to live the life you're trying to achieve. Be the human embodiment of what you want to do. I'm a, I'm a Catholic, and I, I will say right off the bat that I'm, I'm not a very good Catholic. I struggle with it, but I think struggling is part of Catholicism. And so there's a, there's a sense in the Catholic faith that's different than, than maybe some other faiths that the way you are evangelical as a Catholic is to actually try to live a good life and be a demonstration for that. I, I think when we're talking about strong towns, when we're talking about active towns, the way we live that life is not to run around and preach to people and try to convert them to our way of life. Although we both do a little bit of that when we're invited to, we're also, neither of us are very preachy about it, but we try to help people, you know, see things. I don't think it's to run and get in front of people's faces. I, I don't think it's to shame politicians and, and shame people as like the, the direct way of doing it. I think the most powerful thing that we do, and, and I admire this deeply about you because I see you do this, is living the life uh, and demonstrating through our actions how you can live that life. And so, you know, the I've learned more from you by just watching how you do things than I have anything that you've, you've written or produced. And I, I do think that for people who want to make change in their place, being the person who embodies that change, it's an, it's an age old adage, but I, I think it applies to anything we want to do that is, that is change oriented if we want to be effective. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. And, and I would probably, my advice is, is to amplify something that we said earlier, which is be conspicuous about it and be joyful about it. You and I are, are both the type uh, who, who will wear our earbuds and listen to uh, a book on tape or a podcast, but sometimes I go out of my way to take out the, the distraction being conspicuous so that I can be social when I'm out there and make that that smile and make that connection. And 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 believe it or not, Chuck, even with somebody who might be driving a car. Right. Totally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah. wave to them, especially yeah. if I think that they're and again, the context here is that we don't have sidewalks. And so we are literally walking in the middle of the street. And so I'll I will go out of my way to try to wave to the driver so that I can make eye contact to reinforce, try to rehumanize that that experience. And so that's what I mean by being conspicuous being joyful, being cheerful, because guess what? 
we will be able to grow the movement and get more people to think, oh, wow, maybe I should go for a bike ride. Maybe I should go for a walk. <laughs> that guy, Chuck, and that guy, John, they seem to be enjoying it and right. having fun. So Right. Uh, last summer I was biking and I had a car come up behind me and do the very aggressive you should not be on the road thing. See, I'm teasing you here. I'm, I'm, I'm needling you. You had a car or a driver? Had a driver. Yeah. Had a driver. Well, I experienced it as a car, but what I did is I turned it into a driver because that person lived a few blocks from me and they actually drove up behind me. were real aggressive, passed me, honked, you know, we're like, and then they, they pulled up and two blocks later they parked. I went by their house and I smiled and I waved and I said, hi. And, you know, I, I it, it was, it, it, it was a little bit um, passive aggressive on my part, but I didn't do it with that. Like that wasn't in my heart. That wasn't what I was doing. It was a little bit what you're suggesting, which is I, I wanted them to see that I was like a human. And when you're outside of a car, you act more human than when you're often inside a car. And I just wanted them to see, like, I'm, I'm your neighbor. Like I'm a person here. I'm a human being. And you would actually feel sad if I were, de if I were dead and run over and you'd, you'd be hurt if you were the one who did that. So let's, let's just look at each other as humans again. And yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that you do best and you do naturally that I have to work at which is you're just like naturally a nice person. You know, you, you and I are here and I'll be like, ah, crabby. And you'll be like, oh, come on. It's, you know, smile. It's good. And, you know, I've, I, you're inflappable, man. Uh, so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I get uh, uh, annoyed and irritated just like anybody else. But I'm very happy the way you sort of pivoted with that, because I think that's an incredibly important distinction of being able to take a situation which could have been a negative situation and you you rehumanized it and you took what was a, a the, you know, this manifestation of an inanimate object was doing something to me and you transformed it and, and rehumanized that experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I go out of my way to wave, especially if I think that they're distracted to try to shake them out of their thing, because let's face it, the, the car is a magnificent invention, but it's also, uh, I like to refer to it as something that's a magical environment because it puts us into a different state of mind and shelters us from that which is around us. It's part of the challenge because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, unless you're one of the few people who don't drive at all, we, we all are a driver at some point in our life. And so it's a, a level of appreciation that, and attentiveness that we have to have when we happen to be the driver. Well, Louis C.K., who I realize is out of vogue now, but but still did something very comedically genius, had a skit the way he did where he talked about himself as a driver and how he would yell and scream at people. And he said, imagine doing that in an elevator. You know, someone, someone gets in your way a little bit or like bumps you a little bit or what have you, and you get in their face and yell and scream at them. No, you, you would never do that. It's funny because... I've recognized this behavior in myself, you know, where I will get impatient when I'm driving and I will get, you know, I, and, and I try to be conscious of this, you know, like I'm, I'm on the other side. So 
I've learned to try to be forgiving of drivers in a sense, or forgiving of the, not necessarily the behavior, but the, um, the individual and recognize that what really needs to happen is the environment that they're operating in needs to change um, so that they're not sitting in such an entitled position as they navigate. And then, you know, we also need to help them experience it from the other side, you know, as, as someone walking, because it, that does change how you drive, you know, it, it does. Yeah. And it doesn't serve anybody to, to have that sense of righteousness that comes out and, and starting to demonize the other. So yeah. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to get us anywhere. Chuck, thank you so very much. This has been an absolute joy. I can't wait till you uh, come and visit again. I was looking forward to seeing you next month. Yeah. But um, we'll reschedule that. And then someday you're going to get back to Minnesota and we will um, we will bike and walk a neighborhood now with me having closer to your eyes for it than what my old eyes were when the last time you were here. Well, hopefully uh, seeing you will happen. And if it does, I am very much considering the option of making it a road trip. And if I do that, then there's a very good chance that uh, we can, if it fits into your schedule, we can uh, have a sit down in your your hometown because I, I really do want to see how things have changed there in Brainerd, Minnesota. Well, I will buy the potato olays from Taco John's and uh, I will uh, contaminate your fit and honed body with Norwegian Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening. In many ways, I feel like this was a mini master's class in Strong Town's principles. But if you're ready for more, head on over to strongtowns.org and click on the Courses tab to learn more about the recently launched Strong Towns Academy. In honor of Chuck, I'll close out this episode by saying, keep doing what you can to build a strong and active town. Cheers. Cheers.